So I'm challenging all of those people around the country who say that the Midwest restaurant scene is not on par with, let's say, the coasts. Because read this week, big news in the Minnesota restaurant front, Taco Bell has launched a new restaurant concept called DeFi. It's a two-story Taco Bell. The restaurant is on the second floor. There are four lanes where cars can drive in underneath and they can order their tacos. And the tacos defy gravity by dropping from the second floor down these pneumatic tubes to your car. I feel like this is like unnecessary innovation, but you know, it's fine. When this opened up this week, there were lines over an hour long to get Taco Bell tacos. Wonder how long the line for the bathroom was. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. And welcome to episode number 283 of Touchpoint. That is Chris Boyer. I am Reed Smith. Hey, Reed. Every day is Taco Tuesday in Minnesota, apparently. I feel like this is one of those things where, like, you know, fast forward 10 years, and everybody's going to be like, hey, remember, that's where that Taco Bell was. Yeah, that dry cleaners over there, that was that two story Taco. Well, welcome one and all for joining, and uh, if you're new, welcome. If you're uh, back for yet another week, uh, we certainly do appreciate that. Uh, Touchpoint.health is the website. Chris and I have done this show for now, as we just mentioned, 282.3 times as we get into episode 283, and just really appreciative of of everybody's feedback. You know, continue. It's it's really funny. I continue to hear weekly from somebody, just kind of randomly out of the blue. Chris, somebody mentioned the the Romy episode to me uh, this week. And mm. then anyway, I started talking about that. So we really appreciate that. Love to hear kind of what you're listening to, what you're liking, helps us to understand whether it's guests or topics or what have you that, that we might want to uh, have back on or, or talk mm-hmm. more about. So again, touchpoint.health website, go over there, check things out. One thing you'll notice, the TPS report up in the top navigation, ask you for your name and email address. That's all we need. And what we plan to do with that is send you an email, just one email a week, most weeks, except for holidays. And that email will come out on Monday mornings and has just a few articles in it to uh, kick off your week. So a couple of things to read, maybe spur some ideas, thoughts, conversation starters, that that kind of thing. So I'll tell you what, we'll pause, let you go check those things out or make that quick note, and then we'll be back with uh, today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, 
and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. We're going to handle this a little bit differently today in our podcast. We're going to talk about the answer to a question that actually I heard in a meeting this week. As we were planning out a marketing, digital marketing strategy, they actually said, who really is our audience? Which was a really good, insightful question. I think that that as, you know, as we talk about building marketing strategies and digital strategies, it's one of the first questions we really want to answer before we actually start to develop those experiences, right? It is, and, and oddly, good timing on, on my side as well as we had a big uh, consumer journey mapping conversation with some of our finance and, and IT leaders around just touch points that our technology was having with consumers kind of along their journey. It was a very simplified, you know, super linear journey, but um, it was it was just meant to have a you know conversation internally, and and a lot of it did turn to the persona, I don't know if anybody actually used that word, but the person we're actually trying to connect with. So it's interesting. We can kind of jump in and, and talk about this a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, persona development is something we've, you and I have talked about on the show plenty of times before. Sure. Understanding our audience is, is very important. And just this week, I came across two things that I thought would be good for us to kind of to have a conversation around, which challenge the way we think of the traditional healthcare audience or the traditional audience of our healthcare marketing initiatives. Let's talk about these uh, these two different articles because they really challenge our thinking here. Absolutely. Well, the first one, uh, jparkinsonmd.com uh, is where you'll find it. And again, we'll have links to all this kind of stuff in the show notes. He starts talking about this idea that, and we've talked a lot about this, or you've heard variations of these types of comments, right? Which is like, oh, we got to focus on mom. She's the you know, the healthcare buyer for the family, the chief medical officer, uh, you know, for the family, that kind of thing. Or he talks about in here that, you know, 5% of people out there consume 50% of healthcare or account for 50% of the spending in healthcare. And while that's probably true, and a lot of those concepts do hold uh, as we think about marketing, uh, there's some really interesting kind of takes on personas and kind of the targeting that he goes into. The article is itself called Focusing on Those Heavy Users of Healthcare is the Wrong Way to Control Cost. So that's a little salacious if you think about it. Thinking that this 5% that consume 50% of healthcare spending, if you think about that 5% cohort as the heavy users, it really helps us because it provides us a, a focus or an understanding. He points out right away, trying to target only 5% of Americans versus 95% seems like something that is tenable, right? Something that we can actually achieve. But he goes even further and starts to break down this 5% and really looks at that there are really three types of people in in this 5% cohort that represent about a third of the 5%. Sorry for those of you that didn't think we were doing math today. That's Ooh, what we're man. talking about. <laughs> yeah, I had to pause there for a second. So a third of 5%, so not quite 2% of the overall population or something. One and two thirds percent of this five percent break into they each have categories themselves. So let's dive into those personas. Read what's the first one? 
The sick but malleable. So people with one or more chronic medical condition that could potentially be improved on or maybe even just kept under control. The people with chronic medical conditions. He says that here that about 1.6% of people in a population fall under this category of the, the, that suffer from chronic medical conditions. And they cost about 15% of the entire health spend of our population. That's a lot. That is a lot. But he also states that people in this cohort can change year to year. So think about it. There are some, like myself, a person with type 1 diabetes that kind of fits into this, right? That I will be there every year. But then there are others that maybe have episodic events that kind of shift over and over. So he states that it's almost impossible to predict who is going to be in this cohort. Well, it's hard to predict, you know, who comes in and kind of out of this out of this uh, area, that if there is a magical invention uh, for this cohort that comes, uh, you know, down the pipe, that's able to shave 20% of the cohort spending. And of course, he, he does call out that that is a magic service. <laughs> it doesn't exist yet, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> and, the, you know, the total, uh, the total spend for the population will decrease by 3%. So they cost 15%. And if we figured out a way to shave 20% of their spending, okay, let me do the math here, that it's only going to actually resort in an overall decrease of healthcare spending by 3%. And that seems to be like if we're targeting digital health solutions or digital health interventions or what have you to reach these people, that ultimately it's not going to result in a lot of cutting to the bottom line. They can get you anywhere. I mean, it's not to say that we don't need to reach these people and provide them good interventions, but it's really not a cost savings thing here. It's more of a long-term care management solution, I think. Right? Right. The second cohort is what he phrases as the one-time eventers. People who suffer a one-time catastrophic health problem like people getting car accidents or a skiing accident or even the benign brain tumor in a 30-year-old that is removed and never will return again. They kind of fit into this category. So there's no way to predict who's going to get in a car accident, as he points out. So it's like we just have to, he calls it out here, they just have to live with these costs. I mean, how are you going to know? Yeah, I mean, like you know that this these things are going to happen. And maybe if your hospital is in Colorado or something. Yeah, a ski resort. Your ski accident rate probably is higher than folks in Austin, <laughs> Texas. Uh, unless we talk about water skiing, which that's anyway. So yeah, so I mean, you're just, that just kind of is what it is. It's about 17.5% of the entire spending of a population. And that's just like kind of cost per admission, so to speak. I'm thinking back, and I remember at one point in my history, I was working with an organization and they said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to promote our ambulance services to people if they need it at a time of emergency. And I thought, I guess it makes sense from a, like, if you if you make it easy for people Googling, where's the local ED or the, the closest urgent care, that's a way to intervene with them. But I'm not really sure people would actually say to an ambulance driver, actually, don't drive me to that hospital. Can you drive me to this other hospital? They're dealing with a chronic condition. They want to get to the closest hospital as possible. Well, the third one, he points out the inevitables. Also, 1.6% of people in a population, and they too cost about 17.5% of the entire healthcare spend in a population. 
they're highly predictable, very easy for doctors in the system to know someone is getting sick and they're going to be sick until they die. I guess it's like earlier when I said as a type 1 diabetic, I have a chronic condition. I guess I'm in this category because this is something that's not going to go away. It's something I'm going to deal with. I also think about people that have gone through a transplant and they need to continue to take medication right for the rest of their lives. There are a certain group of people there. I would think that these people, since they're highly predictable, there is some good ways to develop innovations, right? Yes. And while he talks about in here that there are innovations for this group, uh, they're very resource intensive, take lots of extensive management of bodies to implement. And so there's no, at least what he's calling out in here is that there's no ROI. They just are, right? And while predictable, it costs a lot of money and resources to do it. So he just categorically outlined three different persona types very clearly that constitute 50% of our healthcare spending and basically says, we're not going to get ROI targeting any of them. Yeah. I mean, the Sigma malleable, that first group is the only one that you can have any uh, meaningful impact on. And that's, you know, saves the system 3%. What about the remaining 95% of people who spend the rest of the 50%? Is it worth it for us to start to target them? Well, as he calls them, the 95 percenters, uh, that they are the neglected ones, Uh-oh. often referred to as worried well or uh, some other demeaning term, he says. Uh, they're ignored <laughs> because they aren't high spenders as individuals. Therefore, it's like no one's spending a lot of time looking at this group. But if the group's purchasing power, like cumulatively, is 50%. $1.5 trillion, that's with a T, then like maybe we should take a look at that. He goes on to say that, by the way, this is the same population that every other brand you see advertised anywhere in the U.S. is going after because they're actively spending their money on things like consumable goods, right? Like cars and phones and food, etc. But for some reason, he, he calls out that healthcare policy wonks, I guess, you and I might be characterized as a wonk in this capacity. We want to ignore them and think that the hodgepodge of local health services, we have to resort to the old-fashioned broken primary care approach, right? Uh, But he says, actually, that's the very population that we should be targeting because they're the right people to target because we can have meaningful interaction. Yeah, and the things that they need, some of which don't even exist in the U.S., or maybe as he calls it, a patchwork, a patch, you know, kind of like a quilt of like it varies. So affordable retail clinic care or, or urgent care, physical therapy, occasional imaging, lab work, things like that, that either, again, just don't exist in the U.S. or they're not affordable. You know, again, it kind of varies. You know, there's pockets, I guess, where this stuff is is good, but um, but it's not, not evenly accessible across the board. I'm wondering if looking at and trying to segment our audiences by how much care they consume is actually the right way to, to do this, Reed. After the break, you and I are going to come back and we're going to actually talk about other types of personas. Actually, this one comes from a recent Monogle study, because I think that looking at it by how they spend or consume care is maybe not the right way to to segment our audience. Maybe we need to start doing it differently. So let's talk about that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. 
In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, so now let's uh, let's jump into this monocle study. I, again, links in the show notes, but uh, titled "Humanizing Brand Experience: Healthcare Edition, Volume 5. This is our latest one, Reed, and we've interviewed people from Monocle before, particularly notable Justin Wartell, and incidentally, his interview is coming later in this episode, and we talk about other findings from the study, but there was one part of the study that we didn't talk about in our interview, but really is germane to the conversation at hand today. It's about the new customer segmentation that they find are emerging. They went in and really sought uh, to answer how has COVID changed folks' behavior? I like the fact they use folks. Is there a better way to target consumers' ever-changing needs? And how are the segments uh, outlined? And think about this. The way they look at their segmentation strategy is not based on cost or really demographics or biometrics. The way they look at things is really based on attitudes and behaviors. Let's get into some of these personas that they have outlined. The first one, Reed, they call the wellness influencers, which is about 20% of the population. What are these people like? They're solely on Instagram. <laughs> well, actually, they may be on Instagram, but anyway. <laughs> but it talks about them being trendsetters, health seekers. They're looking for new approaches, you know, et cetera. So wellness factors into their, uh, you know, at every aspect of their life. So they're enthusiastic, he's, they say in here about looking at those new self-care trends, so the personal training, Eastern medicine, nutrition, mental health. I want to be careful about how we frame some of this stuff, but you know, these are the people that uh, you know are making brownies out of stuff that I've never heard of, and uh, exactly you know, like that. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but they, they say they can afford private health and wellness services and can do that, you know, via you know help and advice and validating their choices, right? So they're open with sharing their journey. They're they're typically the ones who turn uh, for advice and recommendations on living a healthy lifestyle. So again, you're Instagram influencers. Yeah, they're the Instagram influencers. You were right by calling them out that way, Reed. Those are certainly those people and others. Yeah, a- absolutely. There's another segment, though, that they call the habitual strugglers. That's 17% of the population. Generally, these people don't think about their health until they have something that could possibly threaten that health, so to speak. And because they're habitual strugglers, as the title is called out, they're faced with that possibility often. Chronic conditions, they frequently go in and out of hospitals, they have a lot of stress. Regardless of how they got here, they don't want to be judged. They actually don't are not open about their care. They want help, but they don't want to talk about it that much. They're motivated to be more wellness-focused, but they need a lot of help and support. This group is a very challenging group. And whenever we look at like population health metrics and we look at audiences that are, are pretty much at risk, a lot of them kind of fit in this persona segment that they've outlined here. You know, what's interesting about them, though, is they don't go like onto Instagram to share their story. So reaching out to them oftentimes has to be on a grassroots level. 
right? Working with, with those people that are working in the community. Next one on the list, third one on the list, positive preventatives, 15% of the population. So happy, sociable, in good health, says that they have an optimistic outlook on their health and life in general, quite honestly. So they also uh, credit themselves completely for their good health. Well, that's good. Uh, But really, they aren't quite as active uh, or living as a healthy lifestyle as they uh, lead others to believe. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. I, know I feel like I may be fall into this category. No, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I live a, I have a little, very healthy lifestyle. You know, I just eat Chick-fil-A 17 times a week. But anyway, that's more of a convenience <laughs> thing. Um, no, where they do excel is their engagement with preventative care. Okay, yeah, I probably don't fall into this category. They're, <laughs> oh they're proactive and organized about their uh, recommended reg- regimen of preventative care. So the annual wellness visits, skin exams, mammograms, physicals, you know, that, that kind of stuff, all the preventative stuff, going to the eye doctor, which I need to do. And freeing with their trusted healthcare provider to keep on top of their health before it becomes an issue. They're kind of in the middle. They're in the middle a little bit, right? They're probably better than Mm -hmm. than most from a proactive standpoint, it sounds like. But on a day-to-day, maybe, they're not quite as high on the list as some others. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. Okay, so the next segment is uh, what they call the whole health managers, not to be confused with the whole foods managers. The whole health managers are the people that actually think they're the master of their own care. They're 13% of the population, self-reliant. They believe they have the ability to manage their health through the resources available to them online. We know these people. We target them often with the work that we do. They trust themselves before anyone else to keep their health on track. They make their own decisions. Oh, boy. They prefer self-care and holistic health management through clean eating exercise and a variety of therapies. Wait, I think some of these people actually may also be on Instagram, Mm -hmm. just saying. Mm -hmm. They're also highly skeptical of traditional doctors and sort of the pharmaceutical approach to care. So these are people that are more the holistic influencers. And they probably are actually more on Facebook now that I think about it. Well, and they are in Whole Foods, so... I've never been looked down upon so much as when I went into Whole Foods some years ago and just wasn't thinking and asked where the Advil was. And it was like, <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> sure, we're going to have to ask you to leave. Um, <laughs> next one on the list, trusting traditionalists. I think I know where this one's headed, but 13% of the population fall in this category. I say the health and wellness may look different now than it did 30 years ago, but to a trusting traditionalist, not much has changed. So they're the generation who grew up believing that their doctor is always right. And if you get sick, you take medicine to get well. So, you know, it's a very kind of logical thought process of what, you know, how we've thought about medicine and care delivery, I guess. So they're loyal to their doctor and and kind of where they go and and where they go for treatment and care and, and what that approach looks like. So they don't subscribe to some of the alternative therapies. They rarely feel the need to uh, do healthcare research on their own. Man, they're a doctor's dream. Uh, if their doctor prescribes or recommends it, then that's that's like all they need to know. My parents are definitely in that category, right, of trusting traditionalists. The next category, and I know a lot of these people too, they're the unapologetically unhealthy. Mm. Okay. Maybe I fall more in this category. <laughs> Creatures of habit, they say. Oh, that's me. And they aren't likely to change their ways, their diet, exercise, preventative care. That's nothing in their vocabulary. They 
reluctantly go to the doctor when they need to go and if they're if they're sick and certainly that they're not there to do the regular maintenance monogol calls them out as being a live fast die young segment but they don't die well maybe it is me i am a creature of habit this is like the 109 year old grandmother who who they ask you know how do you stay to be 109 years old and she says i smoke a cigar and drink a fifth of whiskey every That's day right. That's this kind of segment. And there are 11% of the population kind of fits into this segment. Well, the the remaining 11%, Dr. Dodgers. I like that show. Wasn't that about the kid who was a doctor? Oh, no, that's Doogie Howser. Sorry. I think it's something about physicians, like doctors in the Vietnam era or something. (laughs) Canada played into this somehow. I don't remember. Anyway. (laughs) So Dr. Dodgers aren't the, are who you think they are. Oh, these young blue collar individuals li- uh, tend to avoid the doctor, not because they're apathetic about their health, but because the process of healthcare is so stressful, costly, and time consuming. For them, going to the doctor is a luxury, uh, which is interesting. I, I don't know I've ever heard it articulated that way, but that, that does, I, I, I'll actually like that. I like the way that's said. And it requires a level of organization and support that their busy lives consume with work, family, friends, and stuff like that. that there's just not a place for it, right? So they may lose income if they take time off from work to see the doctor. They don't, they don't have time for paperwork. You know, I think about you know some of the hospitals in our system where we've got uh, maybe a critical access facility outside of a not a huge town, but outside of a community. There's a smaller hospital, you know, kind of out uh, a ways. And you think about like the high risk pregnancy, right? And, you know, she's having to take time off from work to drive into town and somebody's got to watch the other kid. And now she's out work. And it, that's where I feel like some of these people maybe fall. These, by the way, because they think of it as a luxury, they usually are consumers of urgent care, I would assume, right? Or like even they'll go see healthcare in the CVS or the Walmart because it's more convenient to them. If they need it, they'll stop by there. They just kind of want to avoid our health system all in general. Here's the thing I'll throw out to just further complicate things or just kind of a, uh, I'd love to hear from folks kind of what they think on this. So you got wellness influencers, uh, habitual strugglers, uh, positive preventatives, whole health managers, uh, trusting traditionalists, unapologetically unhealthy, and Dr. Dodger. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven categories here, right? I wonder how much of it, and you can think about this in two different ways, Imagine like seven pieces of the pie, like what percentage of that is, is you in your own life or at different points in time within your life. So it's like, it's not like you're just in this category forever, I would assume, you know what I'm saying? So I think that's where the complexity of a lot of this, when we start thinking about consumers and targeting and all this kind of stuff is it's, it's, you know, they're, you're not just a trusting traditionalist for forever. Maybe you are till something happens and then you become, you know, part of the habitual strugglers or something. I, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like you might can move around in these categories based on your life circumstances. I totally agree with you, Reed, on that. And when you, when you think about starting to understand who your audience really is, you have to understand that that audience does change and shift. And Incidentally, if the last three years haven't done anything for us, it's shown us that healthcare can change significantly. Our audience perceptions can change dramatically for a variety of reasons. And I think that that underscores the importance of regularly understanding who your audience is 
And if you do things to address a particular audience segment, to be able to measure that to see if it continues to work, because there are times that after a while, that particular care might change for that individual. And that service that you did to address them may change as well. A couple of years later, you'll be driving by and say, oh yeah, that used to be the ambulatory surgery care center, and now it's a Taco Bell. With that, let's uh, turn to a really great interview. I actually sat down with Justin Wartell from Monocle. He and I talked through some other aspects, really important aspects of this humanizing brand experience study. Uh, we went, we uh, kind of uncovered some of the things. We also went in a little bit into the framework. After the break, we'll listen to that. And then you and I will be back to close out the show. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast. And today I am delighted to have back on to the show. Uh, Justin, I think this is, I don't know, your third or fourth time on our show here. But that's Justin Wartell from Monocle. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thrilled to be back and to chat with you again. Well, I'm excited that you're here too. And there is a reason why you're back. It seems like every year we find a reason to get together and talk at this time. It is. It's like Christmas at Monagle. We celebrate once a year when we get to launch our new humanizing brand experience report, which we've gotten to share with your audience before. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited to dive into the fifth annual version of this. But before we do, there may be people just listening in that don't know about you or Monagle. Would you mind uh, just sharing a little bit about your background and also your company? Yeah, my name uh, is Justin Wartell, and I'm one of the principals at Monagle. I oversee our work in healthcare, although I guess I could say I'm still a non-healthcare person. At least that's the mindset I try to bring to some of the work that we do. Can I still say that, Chris, after nine years working at Monagle? Um, I came out of retail and consumer packaged goods and joined Monagle to, to help to define where we're headed next. And my responsibilities day-to-day focus on healthcare, including humanizing brand experience. Now, healthcare is just a part of what we do at Monagle. We're a 175-person brand experience agency. So we focus on all aspects of brand and experience and culture and how they're intersecting and interacting with one another as we help to build more exciting and human and moving brands. And hence why you, you have this annual study, the Humanizing Brand Experience Study, which I love how you frame that, right? That it actually brings the human aspects into brand, which is something that in healthcare is very, very close to home. I think that we all try to build very human-centered brands, at least many of us do. You know, this is now the, the fifth volume of this, five years now that you've been doing this. Tell us a little bit about like the genesis of how this started and what, what brought us here, because I know that things have shifted considerably over the last couple of years in this world. Absolutely. We, we started the study originally just because of our intellectual curiosity. And if we're going to lead the conversation within healthcare about experience, we better understand it a bit better. So we collected data originally with about 40 brands and a dozen markets across the country. But we had a lot of interest from our clients across the healthcare landscape to say, well, hey, what about my market or what about my brands? So we started to expand and grow in collaboration with now about 30 different members that participate each year. So the the study is a collaboration between us and about those 30 clients who define the markets and the brands, and then we always sprinkle a few more in. This particular year, we talked to nearly 30,000 consumers across the country, 
looking at a national level, but also then going a bit deeper into specific markets where we evaluated brands and experiences across nearly 70 different attributes. When you think about 70 different attributes, and I've done brand studies before, right? That that seems like quite a bit of data. It's, it seems like it's a very complex way to look at how the, the industry is. It is. I love to use a food analogy. There's a lot of ingredients going on, but the recipe is pretty simple. And when you think about it, if you consider how we all choose brands, whether we're talking about healthcare or outside of it, there are four different things that really ultimately drive us to choose and to recommend and to use the brands that that we choose. Some are sensorial. How present is the brand out in the market? How often do we see it and sense the, the way the brand engages with us? The second is intellectual. How does the brand help meet our needs? Can it meet the, the demand, whether it's very simple or very complicated that we have for it? The emotional attributes, that's the third, is the way it makes us feel when we're interacting. And then lastly, uh, the component is the behavioral aspect. What actions do we take associated with it? I'm sure there are brands that you have in your life, Chris, as, as we all do, that you talk about and you celebrate and you connect with. Maybe you have a t-shirt that has the brand on it, or geez, some people even a tattoo of the brand that they, uh, <laughs> that they love so much. Those four areas, the sensorial, the intellectual, the emotional, and the behavioral, lots of attributes within each of those, but those are the, the things that we know drive decision-making around brands and experiences. I remember you describing that framework before, and I think that actually makes a whole lot of sense. You're indeed right, right? As I start to look now and interact with those brands that I'm very loyal to, or those brands that are, are kind of peripherally in my view, I start to pick those up. I think you taught me how to have this meta view of how brands uh, apply themselves in the marketplace. And it's been very interesting because I've been noticing that over the last couple of years through the pandemic, there's been a noticeable shift in the way organizations are reflecting themselves now in the marketplace and the way I'm experiencing those brands in the marketplace. What, is that what you're seeing too? Absolutely. The data supports what you're talking about, Chris. I think the expectation that people have around the role that brands play, not only in their lives, but in the lives of the communities around them has shifted significantly. If we go a little deeper into our humanizing brand experience data, we see it pretty clearly. There's an expectation that healthcare brands do play a role from a sociocultural perspective, weighing in on issues and challenges, addressing healthcare disparities, inconsistencies in the experience. Unfortunately, our worlds have gotten more complicated and we can't get away with just delivering care. On top of that, we have to think about the role that we play in truly impacting people's lives, both at an employee level, but also across the communities in which we operate. In the most recent conference that you and I both were at, that was a big topic of conversation, right? A number of people were talking about what role do we play now and kind of help shape, shifting and, and, and really living true to that brand promise that we've had for so many years, this is now the time where we can rise to those new expectations in the marketplace. There's some fascinating things that you found in this year's study. The one that kind of jumped out at me, Justin, that I really want to kind of dive into is this whole concept of, in the actual report, you, you kind of pin it as local matters less and less. Let's dive into that for a little bit, if you don't mind, because when I read that, it kind of jolted me a little bit. What do you mean by that? 
and there's a little bit of, of a provocation in the title there. I think what, what we're trying to get to, Chris, is that for so long, especially leaders within healthcare systems, have tried to figure out what does systemness mean? And so much of what many system leaders have done is, is focused on the bigness of systemness. So how many locations, points of access, the proliferation of place where you can interact with the brand. And we saw people beginning to understand at more of a consumer level that that was some of the benefit that systems could provide, the efficiency that comes from it, the consistency that could potentially emerge from it. What we then started to observe this year, and part of why we teed up this insight, is that fewer consumers are citing locations and location convenience as a reason they're choosing the systems that they choose. And so when you think about that, it starts to challenge a bit the assumption many of us make that having more convenient locations and focused on uh, on proximity to the people we serve is the only way to define this notion of accessibility or convenience. We're not trying to say that those aspects don't matter at all. We're instead trying to stretch a bit our own collective definition of what convenience means, that it can be more than just the historical definition that has guided us. When we hear that often overused trite term of world-class care close to home, what we're focusing in on here is the close to home concept here, right? It doesn't mean that you have a clinic at every corner or like CVS five minutes away from everybody in your community. What does it mean now for the consumer around this? What does closer to you mean? Yeah, closer can be uh, both very descriptive, but it also could be a bit more abstract. And and that's what we want to be thinking about. Closeness might mean that you're offering a diversity of expertise, staff, and specialists in an ever closer to you sort of context. It might be that closeness is about the, the perceived amount of time that it takes to get through the door, whether that's physical or virtual, to see you. And convenience and considering that idea around accessibility could be simply through the lens of more resources being available as a result of of being connected together. The other one that was most challenging to probably traditional definition of convenience is the idea that if providers are communicating more effectively, that actually makes the experience more convenient. What we're really trying to get to is not that physical proximity is not a potential advantage, but there are other ways to create it. There are other ways to create a sense of accessibility and convenience for consumers. And we want healthcare leaders to be thinking about all of those, uh, all of those tools within their toolbox as we try to build that volume back and, and get people to choose us as opposed to the ever-growing list of alternatives that exist. As you describe this, Justin, I start to think about, you know, there's all these different things that we've been talking about, about how we can start to deliver care in multiple different ways, right? Through virtual means. We've talked about that numerous times on the show. Through in-home or care at home, you know, those those types of models. In-person care, obviously, you know, there's this whole big kind of quandary about like in-person versus virtual. What you're talking about here now is this whole convenience factor kind of scales across all these modalities. Absolutely. You, what you've got to find is the intersection of, of your structure and your system and the definition of convenience that's most aligned to your consumer. So if, if you're, ta- you're out talking to people and you know how your target audiences think about convenience. And then we think about, well, what what do we have within our system? What structurally 
Can we celebrate? Can we amplify? That intersection is where your brand experience is going to be most authentic and believable uh, for people once we start to tee it up and offer it to them. All of this is starting starting to paint a clear picture, whereas I thought it was, like you said at the beginning, you know, there's a lot of different ingredients, but there's a recipe here involved. To me, that recipe is, is just that, is understanding how you're represented in your community and how best to leverage that. You don't have to embrace this whole concept. You need to be on every street corner, so to speak, to be closer to our communities. When you think about the CBS example that you used, part of the reason that that brand positioning and, and narrative makes sense is because the physical footprint puts them in those locations. So their manner of convenience is about that immediate proximity. But for other organizations, it's going to be different. It's still possible for even a healthcare brand that doesn't have as many locations as maybe a big competitor down the street to still tell a convenient story and even to tell it with greater consistency and flexibility and adaptability for consumers than a system that's much bigger. That's the opportunity is to find what's best for you. For those of us listening in that are in smaller organizations, smaller health systems, that's refreshing to hear, right? I think that there's been always this kind of concern that the only way to get there is to grow, grow, grow. And it seems like there still is a a niche here for all of our, our organizations, depending on where you are in your community. Absolutely. There's so many great insights here, Justin. We can't get into all of them, but I want to dive into another one here. Uh, I think you kind of teed it up earlier as saying like sort of that whole person care or, or the fact that healthcare is becoming now more to our consumers, more of a, of a holistic, self-empowered, or I, I don't know the best way to say it. How would you phrase it? Yeah, I mean, what we're trying to frame out is when you think about a healthcare brand, there's so many more expectations of what we can deliver. If you look at what people are asking for from us, along with addressing issues of affordability and the accessibility of mental health services, as an, as an example, the third among the things that people are asking for from us is more holistic approaches to healthcare outside of traditional medicine. And what it gets to is this broadening definition f- moving from healthcare to this idea of health, care, and wellness, and this intersection of those three things, and maybe even a continued blurring between what's what's health, what's care, what's wellness. Regardless of how we define it as leaders within the industry, consumers look at it as a collective bucket. So it sets up an opportunity in our minds to really think about the, the kinds of services or offerings or storytelling or partnerships that help to make this transition, as we framed it, as holistic care going mainstream and becoming a much more natural and expected part of the portfolio that healthcare brands offer. Now, we in healthcare, we've been talking about aspects of this for a very long time, social determinants of health. We're even talking at, you know, uh, I've had conversations with our primary care teams about being quarterbacks, so to speak, to kind of help um, their, their patients to not only manage their sick care, but manage their wellness and their health. But this is uh, this is a whole nother level. So much of our discussion, it, absolutely, in the past was about the idea of not having permission to do so. We would have conversations about, well, but consumers don't really give us permission for that. And I think what we see absolutely and categorically in this data is we now have permission. The question is, can we turn it into action from an offering perspective, whether it's people's desire for 
acupuncture, mental health, or support from a diet and nutrition perspective, down to the level of even thinking about what we call things, depending on what we're trying to convey to our audiences. Do we talk about it as whole person health versus holistic health? Even the the language that we choose around naming these kinds of things has an impact on on how people are perceiving and, and leveraging it. And I've heard that term whole person health before, and I always felt that was that didn't that that sounds like a robot came up with that term. But I understand now after reading some of the insights here that what we're talking about is kind of evolving this whole concept to embrace some of those human aspects of what your your brand could be, right? In fact, you kind of you have this really interesting um, diagram, this holistic healthcare nomenclature value association, which is just fascinating to me. Cause can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. It's one of the most complicated charts in all of the books. So I appreciate the opportunity <laughs> to talk for a moment about it. So essentially what we're trying to do here is to demonstrate how the language that you choose, the words that you title this particular area, convey specific associations with attributes in the minds of consumers. So if you're looking at this chart, what it says, for example, is that whole person health across the board more positively conveys the attributes listed on the left than, than some of the other alternatives. If we're trying to tell a story of a of proactive, then preventative health best expresses proactive in comparison, holistic medicine does kind of the worst job across the board that can be <laughs> proactive. What we try to get to here is that, there again, there's no right answer. There's no black and white to how we name things. In fact, you'll, you'll have debates for weeks and weeks with physicians and other leaders about how to name some of these things, but they do convey specific meaning. So if you're, if you're an organization that's all about advancement or intelligence, maybe you're in academic medicine as an example, uh, whole person health is going to be a lot harder working than preventative health as an example or holistic health. So it's it's about choosing the right ideas that convey what's most important to your own brand and your own positioning. I guess names really do matter here too. I mean, I made a little bit of joke like whole person health sounds like it was written by a robot, but it, it actually conveys so much more to the average consumer in terms of, or the average person in your community, in terms of these attributes. And what we're talking about, some of these brand attributes are things like caring, friendly, innovative, etc. It's a fascinating chart. And when people that are listening in go and download the, your, your Humanizing Brand Experience Volume 5, find your way to that. It's fascinating. It's on pages 50 and 51 of the, of the report. It's just completely fascinating to me the way it's outlined. So as, as we look at all of this, right, this holistic care or whole person health, as we call it, how do traditional organizations start to embrace that? We're not going to be idealistic uh, about this. I think the first is to determine the, the commercial feasibility and think about how it connects to or amplifies some of the, the work you're already doing. At the end of the day, picking the offering the program that's the best fit for you as a starting point. So we assume that all of your listeners, incredibly savvy brand people, they probably use their brand as a filter on their business decision making. So it's probably easy for them to look at it and say, okay, if if we're all about um, a particular attribute like caring, maybe caring best manifests, manifests from a whole person perspective as mental health offerings and expanding our portfolio there. Because to truly care for people, we want to make sure that we're helping to address 
mental health um, that might be challenging some of our consumers and communities. It's about picking the right thing. What we don't want to have happen as a takeaway here is that people see some of these lists of things that, that are expected and think, well, I've got to figure all of these out at once. No, let's focus on understanding what you truly stand for now and let's determine which of these one to two programs or offerings might be the best fit for you. And let's put our focus there. Yeah, it always kind of boils back to that as well, right? You have to be authentic with how you're presenting yourself. And um, it isn't formulaic in that you could just say, okay, now we're this and rebrand yourself that way. It has to really reflect who you are. But I think health systems have sort of an advantage of that in this space. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I think the the historical pushback has always been, well, we don't have permission to do it. Well, here's permission. Um, 28,000 consumers have given permission. Now it's time for health systems to act. I love that. That's kind of a nice calling. There are so many other findings in this report that we haven't even touched on, Justin. You get into different types of consumer segmentation, which I found to be very fascinating. Even getting into diversity, equity, and inclusion and some of the implications that are new world order, that's weird to say that. Maybe I should not use that term, but the way our, our world is now kind of plays out. What's the big takeaway here when health systems, when they read this and they go through this really great exhaustive report, what, what's the big call to action here? If there was one thing we, we would want healthcare leaders to be thinking about is the role that each of you play in terms of making change happen. You are change makers, but the last couple of years have have been incredibly challenging. So if there's one thing we'd love for people to take away, it's to, to rediscover a bit of that swagger, to realize that you have the potential to be the voice for humanity within your organization, to lead with data and insight, to push the boundaries of how you define the, the future of your organization and this experience that you create to help make your healthcare system more inclusive and more considerate of the diversity of humans that you serve, and to truly own your role. You are a change maker. You can be that voice for change within the enterprise. So we'd love for, for folks to come away. At the end of all of this data, these are just tools. These are to, to help you be more effective in making change. But we hope you each rediscover the swagger that can help drive change across your organization. That's such an uplifting message there, Justin. Really great. Now, I know people listening in, they're going to want to learn a little bit more about you if they are not already connected with you. What's a good way for them to reach out to you as well as Monaco online? We push all of our content through LinkedIn. So I'd love to connect with anybody who is interested in learning a bit more uh, through LinkedIn. And then I assume in the notes, we'll provide a link so you can download the report directly. We're also happy to share. Uh, we do an executive summary style version where rapid fire, even faster than today, Chris will run through all of the insights from uh, from the report and be that voice to to add a little bit of humanity to the data. And so happy to to deliver those for anyone that's interested or just needs an extra voice beating this drum for change. Yeah, and I will recommend highly that if you uh, if you if you can do so and you want to do so for your organization, definitely worth reaching out to Justin and uh, the smart folks at Monaco to kind of help you out with that. Justin, I really appreciate your time today to kind of walk through some of your humanizing brand experience. Let's let's make it uh, more frequent than just once a year. I'll have you back on to talk a little bit more. Uh, maybe we could go deeper into some of the other insights that you shared. 
That sounds like a great plan. We always appreciate the opportunity to join you. uh, And thank you for the kind words. Special thanks to Justin Wartell for coming on the show. Uh, It was good. Uh, It was a neat topic. We may find ourselves down the path of just it's top of mind for me right now with with the personas and journey mapping and targeting and kind of what that all means in the consumer experience and so understanding more about who it is that we're you know like you said earlier the question of you know so who really is our audience is one that i think we'll continue to kind of hone in on touchpoint.health is the website again sign up for the tps report also uh what you'll see in there are a couple of links to upcoming conferences so we'd love to see you later this year shishmed hcic that kind of thing let us know where you're going uh what you're doing where you're going to be we'd love to connect uh rate review subscribe you know uh folks we should have on the show topics we should cover uh just reach out we'd love we'd love to hear from you before we wrap up a couple of recommendations what uh what do you have today Read in the theme of today's show. I am a, a, a Kindle user, and I'm also an Amazon Prime member. And you know, if you combine those two together, you have access to a lot of like really free, inexpensive books that you can read on Kindle. Over this last weekend, I was just like, "Well, I'm going to be doing some traveling coming up here. What are some good free books that I could just kind of read quickly while I'm on a plane?" I downloaded a book that I started. And it's called Customer Journey Mapping, Where to Begin. Oh, man, where to begin? I mean, it's the basics, right? Just getting back to the basics. Totally free because I'm a Prime member. It's by Robert Thacker. It's really straightforward. It's it's basically he outlines from the beginning what is a journey map, how to do it in a very simple way. It's, it's not a long book. It's about 25 pages. Like I said, like a kind of a not even a long plane ride, like half of a plane ride, honestly, to just get through it. But just to remind you, to reiterate back, what are some things that you could do when you're doing simple journey mapping exercises or even complex journey mapping exercises? It's good to kind of remind you. So I'm going to make that recommendation. There were actually a number of other books about journey mapping that were on um, free to you know Kindle Unlimited or whatever it is, the Amazon Unlimited thing. This book, I, uh, I like it. I'm enjoying it. If you have some time, download some books like this. That's a great idea. I am actually recommending an app called Vivid Seats. And uh, vividseats.com is the website, but there's an app. It's, it's kind of like Ticketmaster a little bit, right? But it's a it's a ticketing uh, kind of exchange, if you will. It's cool. I, you know, of course, all sports and concerts, events, you know, all, all that kind of stuff is in there. And it's got a nice UI and allows you, uh, like I bought some baseball tickets to a Cardinals game and you can kind of zoom in and click on the section and see what the field view looks like from that section. So kind of what your view would be. And that's cool. It's a really clean interface. And of course I'm buying these tickets as resale and uh, it kind of brokers it, transfers the tickets to you. It's just, it's really well done. And what's cool is you actually get rewards. So you get a stamp they call it, uh, for each ticket you buy. And you get a credit after 10 stamps. Um, So like, I, yeah, so like the last time when I bought tickets for us to go to the Cardinals game for the family, that put me over 10 stamps and I got like a credit of like $41 or something. So like the next time I now go buy tickets, I can apply that $40 credit to my next purchase. And so you can use it just inside the app the minute you get it kind of a deal. So anyway, it's just a neat loyalty thing, but the UI is really well done. 
uh, the way you can search and sort and filter and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, anyway, yeah, Vivid Seats. Cool. I'll have to check that out. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks for joining us for yet another episode, uh, specifically episode 283. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.